The Weekend. Variety. Wireless. which is pretty close in the public's imagination and memory. I think it was big news at the time. And honestly, I think a lot of the general public still have a bit of a scratch of the head about this one. The Rose Noel from 1989. Let's talk first of all about the boat that saved them. The boat was a 40-foot fibreglass trimaran. She'd been designed and built by her owner and skipper, John Glennie. He'd had a bit of experience with trimarans, actually. He'd built one when he was in his 20s. He'd done a boat-building apprenticeship. He and his brother sold their motorbikes and funded the backyard construction of a smallish trimaran called the Highlight, which they taught themselves to sail, and with pretty much no equipment whatsoever, they sailed around the Pacific as far as America, and eventually sold her before making their way back to Australia, where they decided they'd do it all again. They built identical trimarans this time. They'd learned a lot about what you do and don't want in a boat cruising the Pacific. This was John Glennie's dream boat, and he lavished care and attention on it. He made it strong. He made it very comfortable. But the trouble with a trimaran is if you flip one of those over, it's not going to get back on its feet unless an equal catastrophe overtakes her to reverse the original catastrophe. She hadn't done a lot. She'd been launched in Sydney. She'd undergone a delivery voyage across to Picton. And John Glennie was in a bit of a hurry. He'd joined a cruising association up in the islands. He'd been away from the islands too long, he felt. It was a spiritual home and he just couldn't wait to get back there. So there was a big regatta planned in Tonga and he was desperate to get up there. So he sailed to Picton. His intention there was to raise a crew as quickly as possible, basically as mates, and then he would set off forthwith. None of his mates could just walk away from their lives quite as easily as he could. He was accused by one of his co-survivors of this whole thing of being a kind of Peter Pan figure, and it's probably quite accurate. He um, seems to have been pretty averse to forming commitments in his life. He had a string of conquests across the Pacific. That's the kind of person he was, but not everyone was able just to drop everything and go off sailing to the islands like him. A bit of a South Pacific hippie? That's exactly what he was. He doesn't seem to have settled down as he got older either. The Rose Noel, incidentally, was named after a Tahitian beauty queen. She was a Miss July, whom he'd met at Raiatea in the Tahiti group. He was back in Sydney, and she sent him word that she was travelling out to see him. And she boarded a Pan Am flight in Tahiti, and it crashed upon takeoff. Although there was one survivor, she was not that survivor. He named the Rose Noel after her. We'll talk about the Rose Noel, the voyage, and... The amazing story of survival. In fact, it was so remarkable, it was unbelievable. John McChrystal, Shipwreck Tales this week, The Rose Noel, 1989. Curiosity not only killed the cat, it spawned a whole radio show. 
Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Shipwreck Tale this week, the Rose Noel from 1989. The last voyage, of course, of the Rose Noel was from Picton. Who was on board? Why? Who knew whom? As I've noted, John Glennie, the skipper, was desperate to get a crew and just get going as quickly as possible. He met a fellow by the name of Phil Hoffman, who was a retired, or rather had been made redundant, employee of the power department, who was in the yacht next door at the marina at Picton. Phil was living on a ferro-concrete boat with his wife. Yeah, he'd just got chatting to John Glennie, and John's stories just set that fire going, really. Most people who live aboard their boats have dreams of sailing them around the world and doing exactly what John Glennie had done with his youth. When Glennie asked him whether he wanted to come with him, it was too much to resist. So Phil went home, the yacht next door, asked his wife Karen whether he could go, and she said, she sort of shrugged and said, why not? Uh, as long as the boat's safe. So Phil signed on and helped in the preparations of the boat. It was difficult to raise the other two people he felt he needed to take the boat. He'd designed the Rose Noel to be sailed two-handed, but he'd decided for the sake of a comfortable and safe passage, it would be better if he had two complete watches aboard, so two lots of two people. He needed those extra two people, so he advertised, he asked around, and eventually word got to Outward Bound, where there was a fellow by the name of Rick Hellregal working. He was 31, an ex-cop and an Outward Bound instructor. He was a cancer survivor. Three years previously, he'd been diagnosed with a brain tumour and given two years to live. After radiotherapy, the brain tumour disappeared and he was getting on with his life. He was a bit of an alpha male, as most of those Outward Bound types are, and dare I say it, ex-cops. But they didn't really have time to get to know each other before he was signed on as well. A couple of days later, Rick showed up with a mate of his who was a cook at Outward Bound. And this was a young American by the name of Jim Nalepka, who was an ex-drug addict from Minnesota. He had been working at Outward Bound as a cook, surrounded by all these adventuring types. He wondered what he was doing with his life. And when this opportunity for adventure was floated before him, he thought, I'm in on that. That's the crew. They didn't know each other. John Glennie was a bit nervous about the tight connection, as he saw it, between Jim and Rick. He had been advised by someone with much experience in blue water sailing that you didn't sign husbands and wives into your crew and you didn't get mates along either because mm. there's a pre-existing relationship there that might take priority over what needs to be done on the boat. Throw people into a boat, especially if things get hairy and aspects of people's personalities begin to emerge. And unless you know them pretty well, you can't predict what's going to happen. So really you need to fall back on the basic understanding that this is my boat, what I say goes. It would have been a very close connection with the boat itself because he'd built it. And it was his dream boat and it was his home as well. He lived aboard this boat and it sort of represented his aspirations for the future as well. There was a whole lot of emotion at stake for Glennie in this boat, it's fair to say. This wasn't a shoddy boat and he wasn't reckless at all, it seems. John Glennie had had sat-nav, all the bells and whistles. She was very well set up. She had lots of safety features. She had a VHF, which is basically used for ship-to-shore or ship-to-ship contact over short distances. And he had a ham radio aboard as well, an amateur radio. And you can talk to anyone anywhere in the world on one of those. But he didn't have a licence, so he had that aboard as a last resort emergency thing. He had an EPIRB an emergency position indicator relay or radio beacon. Basically the job of that was just to send a signal to a satellite which would relay it to a listening station. 
by using various satellites all picking up the same signal, could get a very accurate fix on where that beacon had been set off. But they were in their infancy at this stage, and so was the network that listened for them, and this becomes significant. He's experienced, it's a stable boat, he's got everything on board for all safety considerations. What could possibly go wrong, John? What could possibly go wrong? And when they put this question to him before they went, as anxious spouses insisted they did, his crew were just met with dismissive answers, really. This boat's unsinkable, she can't go wrong. Modern trimarans cannot flip. She's made of polystyrene foam sandwiched in fiberglass, so even if she breaks apart, the bits are going to float. So this boat is unsinkable come what may. Glennie had enormous faith in his boat, and the others were persuaded to have enormous faith in him. They departed on June the 1st, winter I suppose but it doesn't really matter from Picton. They delayed a couple of days because there was a big southerly storm blowing through. After a couple of days the forecast suddenly turned good and off they went. They had a absolutely routine first couple of days. They blasted through Cook Strait at a rate of about 16 knots which is hoofing and then turned the corner at Cape Palliser and began heading up the Wairarapa coast. Everything was pretty good. They even struck a calm spell and they were becalmed for a little while, with the Wairarapa coast still in view. But then another southerly storm blew up. This one put the frighteners up them. It was accompanied with enormous waves. It was bitterly cold. And let's bear in mind that Phil had sailing experience. In fact, he lived on a boat, so he was comfortable with boats. Rick didn't. Nor did Jim. Jim had absolutely no experience. He'd never steered a boat in his life before. He's got an inexperienced crew around him, and when things cut up rough on day three in this big storm, Glennie finds himself having to do most of the steering because the others either are unwilling or they're just not up to it. He pretty much exhausts himself on that third day. That night, the first cracks and everything begin to show. The waves are blasting up behind the boat. The boat's speeding down the face of them. If you don't steer correctly, you'll go side on and broach, where the wind and the waves are all trying to push the boat over. For some of these guys who'd never really been out of sight of land, and they'd never been aboard a boat this fast, they knew themselves they couldn't steer it in these conditions, and the guy who could was getting pretty tired. Their faith was beginning to weaken, and the first to really go was Phil. From this point on... His shipmates began to hate Phil because he began muttering as a kind of a mantra, oh God, we're going to flip, oh God, we're going to flip, oh God, we're going to flip. He went and buckled himself into his bunk, which was just this tiny sort of squeeze hole towards the back of the boat, and he also suffered from claustrophobia. So his mantra became, I've got to get out of here, we're going to flip, I've got to get out of here, we're going to flip. Not the kind of conversation that's going to soothe the nerves of those around him. They did flip. They did. It's Glennie's fault, because he should have known better, but he was persuaded by his crew, really, to stream a kind of sea anchor behind the boat, first of all, to try to slow her down, but it didn't have much discernible effect. And because he was past being able to steer any longer, he was just exhausted, and no one else was game to take over, the crew persuaded him to stream a larger sea anchor and to drop the sails and basically lie a hull, which means no sails up, nose of the ship to the sea so that she rides it out properly and just wait out the storm. Glennie's strong preference was to keep sailing through it. This was not on the scale of the storms he'd been through in lesser qualified boats, so he would far have preferred to sail through it. But he streamed the sea anchor, and then the sea anchor failed them. And the effect of this was that for as much of the time as it was keeping their nose to the wind, it was dragging them sideways. And that's the worst possible position when you've got these big swells coming through. 
that's mistake number one, streaming the thing in the first place. Mistake number two, it had cost him 800 bucks, and he was buggered if he was going to cut adrift an $800 piece of kit. So he left it there, it being too dangerous to try to retrieve it. So all night they were going side on to the waves and they were nearly flipped two or three times where waves would pick them up and stand them on their beam ends, standing side on in the water. The guys trying to sleep in the main cabin were sort of flung out of their bunks and gear was going everywhere and it was just generally pretty bloody terrifying. And then, of course, towards six in the morning, the storm dropped. The storm went away, stopped blowing. The crests of the waves, which were being whipped to a foam, were smooth. Everything looked good. The sea was abating. But then a rogue wave came. This can always happen. If you've got two different swell patterns converging, then two waves can reinforce one another. So you can have 10-foot waves and then suddenly a 20- or 30-foot wave comes through. And that's what happened. They heard it come with the roar of, as they've described it, a freight train. Next thing, they were standing on their heads. The, The boat had flipped. The ceiling of the boat was now the floor, and the floor was now the ceiling. And I take it no one was on deck No, the lives of anyone who might have been on deck were saved because they were all down below. Anyone who'd been on deck would have been killed. As it was, they were lucky, I suppose, to escape injury because two of them at least were in the main cabin and were flung right across it. They smashed into the dining room table on the way. The other two were a bit luckier because they were squeezed into the after cabins where there wasn't room to be flung anywhere, really. But, of course, water starts flooding into the boat. Phil, who was already on the edge of panic... To everyone's surprise, he's quite a big guy with cat-like agility, sprang from his tiny bunk and kicked the companionway hatch out. And that had the effect of increasing the inflow of water and also to sweep a whole lot of gear that was floating around out of the vessel, which, with the benefit of hindsight, was a very bad development in their situation. Mr Popular. Yes, Mr Popular gets even more popular. What do you do now? Well, it's a hopeless situation, really. Probably the worst thing was that John Glennie had been saying when anyone asked him directly, or anyone said in his hearing, the boat's going to flip, he'd say, this boat can't flip. Basically, he staked his entire reputation, his entire credibility on this one assertion, this boat cannot flip. The boat flipped. (laughs) So your skipper has no credibility any longer. And in fact, he's not in command of anything any longer. And his nose was rubbed in this fact several times in the next few days. But what they essentially have to do now is make do with what they've got. They've got one area of the boat, of the interior of the boat, which is not underwater, and that's the after cabin underneath the cockpit. This is an area about the size of a double bed, so there's plenty of room for people to stretch out and lie there, but the problem is it's only 18 inches high, and there are four of them. Worse, it's semi-submerged. There's enough water slopping in and out of it that you cannot stay dry if you're just lying on the bare deck. So what they needed to do is just cram gear in there and then stuff anything they could in the way of hatch covers, tabletops and what have you in there to make a sleeping platform. And that kept them mostly dry. They had a couple of foam mattresses such as trampers use and that was their only comfort lying on this hard assortment of objects like tabletops and what have you. Is it pitch black? It's pitch black. It's still six in the morning when all this has happened and it's the middle of winter so it's still dark. But what light would be in the cabin? At first the sat-nav set was lighting it, the screen of the sat-nav, uh, satellite navigation that is, it's the forerunner to GPS, 
it takes periodic fixes to give you a sort of rough idea of where you are, but there's a lot of uncertainty. There was a hell of a lot of uncertainty with their sat-nav because shortly after it went upside down, it then went out as the electrics shorted. Once that dim orange light had gone, there was just nothing. They were in the dark, and they had no means of lighting it, given they had no torches and the ship's own lighting was inoperable due to the water. This is a perilous position now. Fresh water, first of all. They are quite happy about the fresh water situation. They've got 360 litres in three tanks around the boat, so they don't even think about shortage of water. They're completely relaxed. Food, they've got a heap of it. They've got enough for a year, which Glennie has stashed there, because long after he's made his regatta and kissed his companions goodbye, he's going to keep cruising the Pacific, and food's much cheaper to buy in Picton than it is in your average Pacific island. So he's crammed as much aboard as he can. Food and water, not a problem. They also have the EPIRB. Uh, they haven't lost track of that. They know where it is. Uh, in fact, uh, the night before they capsized, one of the crew members who was so alarmed at their situation had got the EPIRB uh, out of the place where it was stowed and lashed it to the cabin table. Can you tell people what the EPIRB is again? The EPIRB is an emergency position indicating relay beacon, basically a radio, and all it does is it sends out a single unbroken signal, like a dial tone. That's relayed by satellite to listening stations, and by using more than one satellite, they can triangulate and work out precisely where it is. You flick a switch and it starts transmitting. And this, of course, is what they did. They flicked the switch on the EPIRB, the little reassuring red light came on, and so they expected to be rescued five days, eight days max. This ends up being a tale of almost unimaginable survival and a lot of people didn't believe it was done because it was just such a long time adrift at sea and why weren't they picked up? We'll carry on with the shipwreck tale this week, The Rose Noel. Life, the universe and everything in between. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. This week, the Rose Noel. John McChrystal, they're upside down in an unflippable boat. The captain has lost credibility, but they've got all the bells and whistles. They've got food. They've got water. So despite thinking of their situation in, in terms of trepidation, survivability, this should be a done deal, shouldn't it? It should. They have the means to survive. They're psychologically prepared for it to be a short wait for rescue. Unfortunately, the whole bunch of things converge, as they usually do in disasters, to ensure that they're not rescued. On June the 5th, an arrangement that John Glennie had with someone back in Picton to relay weather information to him worked against them because Jim Bramwell, who was the man doing that, picked up a weak signal on his amateur radio that he thought might be from the Rose Noel. It gave a position but didn't identify the calling station, which was quite in accordance with what Glennie said he would do because he didn't want to be done for not having a licence for his radio. So he recorded the position and plotted it on the chart. So he had this idea that the Rose Noel was actually 300 nautical miles north of her actual position. He received another signal a few days later, very similar, and having made the expected amount of progress on from that initial position, and so he charted that as well. When people came a-knocking on his door asking whether he'd heard from the Rose Noel, he said, well, I might have heard from them, and if I did, then this is where they are. That was unfortunate. The other unfortunate thing is the EPIRB signal was not heard. In order to be heard, someone had to be looking out for it, and at that stage, New Zealand didn't have a dedicated station listening full-time for EPIRB signals. We do now, largely as a result of this. 
what it relied on in those days really was for an aircraft or another ship to pass within range. But it was noted that an EPIRB set off, similar model EPIRB set off in similar circumstances somewhere else in the world, wasn't detected until a searching plane passed within 10 nautical miles. Mm. So someone had to be passing very close to them in order to detect them. At this stage, they're 140 nautical miles east of Castle Point. They're in a part of the ocean where no one goes. Planes don't go there. Aircraft are leaving from Auckland. Even if they're heading to South America, they're well to the north. So they're in a black hole as far as EPIRB goes as well. Not that they know it. They expect that little red light on their transmitter is going to bring salvation very shortly. What's life like on board? Now it's a psychological battle. And they're not exactly a tight-knit group anyway. They hate Phil because Phil's a misery guts. He gave himself up for lost even before they capsized, and now that they've capsized, he's just waiting for the end to come. Rick, of course, he's an action man. He's a cop, was a cop. He's an outward-bound instructor. He's used to taking control and just basically using strength and resourcefulness to extricate himself from situations. Can't be done here. They're powerless. And for an action man, that's the worst possible situation. They're lucky in many ways they've got this young guy, Jim Nalepka, there, because although he doesn't blow his own trumpet, John Glennie gives him a lot of credit for being the diplomat and the one who manages to smooth over the constant conflict between Glennie especially and Rick. The two are sort of like alpha male goats butting their heads together. Quite commonly, when someone was hungry, they'd reach for some food because they're expecting to be rescued. There's no thought of rationing. So they'd reach out, grab some food. Glennie made it a practice to say, anyone else want some food while I'm grabbing some? The others would usually accept. When Rick reached for food, he'd just grab it, and he wouldn't think of his companions at all. And Glennie more than once called him on this. And whereas the others, if they were accused of the same thing, would apologise, Rick wouldn't. He'd just say, everything changed when this boat flipped over. You can imagine what that did for interpersonal relations between him and Glennie. The trouble is, their unflippable boat, now that it's flipped, is unflippable. They're stuck like this unless they're caught in another storm, which is going to knock them upright again. They've built the sleeping platform in their tiny, cramped, confined space. And should the boat flip again, then they're going to be buried under everything they've built their sleeping platform out of. And there's only one means of getting in or out of this compartment, and it's this tiny little aperture that you have to squeeze yourself into feet first in order to get in. And it's off-centre, so everyone else is off to one side of the entrance. Only one person's going to be able to make a timely exit once they've extricated themselves from all the gear. So this is another nagging fear, that the boat going upright again is going to be their worst nightmare, whereas you would think it would be their salvation. I have to ask, what about wheeze and poos? They're a bit coy about poos. Um, I think they must have used a bucket and chucked it out. Mm. What they did is they cut holes in in the hull. Trimorans commonly have escape hatches anyway just against this possibility that they flip over. Most ocean-going trimarans will have an escape hatch in the main hull. When Phil was telling his mates down the boozer that he was setting off into the Pacific on this trimaran, the Rose Noel, everyone said, oh, we know that boat doesn't have escape hatches. Multi-hulls are notorious for flipping, and he doesn't have escape hatches. They cut the escape hatches that probably should have been there anyway, and that was their means of getting out. At first, of course, it was too stormy, and they didn't, but then after four or five days, the storm blew out, and they were able to get out onto the top side and at least stretch their legs, get a bit of sun, and presumably dispose of their waste. They just peed in the water in the cabin, and they had a um, coffee jar, which they used as a sort of bedpan. The storm finally blew out on the 9th, so they'd been five days in that situation. 
still not sure whether the ship was going to flip over again and mm. that will be drowned down below. Things didn't really begin improving for them for better part of a month. They managed to get out and spread a V flag on the hull, which is a bright orange flag with a black V on it, one of the internationally recognised distress signals. Apparently that raised spirits enormously because they thought they couldn't be missed from the air. They worked out a system whereby one person would keep watch, they'd shove their head out like a meerkat every now and then, and have a look around in case there was anything sailing past. The water was 12 to 15 degrees, very cold. They nicknamed the odd rogue wave, which would come from nowhere, out of the dark, and just drenched that person who was on watch. They nicknamed them ghoulies. It became a source of great amusement to someone, the, the scream of, oh, bloody hell, that's cold. And then some sodden figure would crawl back into their crawl space, shivering. They're on the verge of hypothermia. Funnily enough, had they not been four of them in this tiny cramped space, they probably would have succumbed to hypothermia. The only thing going for Phil, it seemed to be, was that he was like a human furnace, as one of them wrote. He just seemed unnaturally warm. And so whenever you were cold, you snuggled up with Phil. It was a mixed blessing because he had scraggly fine hair and that seemed to get up your nose when you were trying to get to sleep. And he also had this habit of curling his toes and raking them down the backs of your legs. He was claustrophobic, so he flat out refused to be the farthest person from the exit of their little cabin. So John Glennie offered to take his turn each time it ought to have been his turn to be there. Otherwise they rotated their positions. If one person had to roll over, everyone had to roll over because there just wasn't room for one person to perform that manoeuvre themselves. You begin to get a picture of just how four niggly, desperate people, cold, hungry and increasingly thirsty, would be finding this. Now you said there was enough food for a year. The trouble is access to the food. What's happening is John Glennie seems to be the only one who is willing to dive for it. He had to dive in his own cabin. He's best qualified because he knew the layout of the boat and where things were stowed. So perhaps it made sense that he should do it. But he did resent it at times, that job fell to him. But he would dive in the murky water. The water, needless to say, they'd been urinating in it. Uh, It gets flushed regularly. Every time a wave comes along, it washes through the boat. So it's flushed. But on the other hand, a lot of the food is disintegrating into the water and making it very, very murky. There's flour, there's wheat bix, there's all that kind of stuff. So it's a horrible job going down into the muck to try to find food. On the 13th of June, after they'd run out of juice and milk, Glennie decided that it was time they tapped the fresh water tanks. So he went up to one of the filler holes, idly wondering what he would do when he took the cap off with 140 litres of water above him, how he was going to shove that cap back in. It turns out he needn't have worried because when he took the filler cap off, nothing came out. He said, oh no, which the others heard. And then he went to another tank, opened it, same thing. Then he went to the third tank, opened it, and he already knew what had happened by now, and the same thing had happened. His comrades were absolutely beside themselves over what his oh no signified. He calmly told them that the fresh water tanks had breather tubes in them, so that as water was drawn out, air would replace it. Of course, invert the tank and the water just runs straight out. They had not a drop of fresh water left aboard. How long have they been in this situation now? Yeah, this is 13th of June, so this is nine days after they turned turtle. They've been living as though there's no tomorrow, really, up to this point. It's outside the window they thought rescue should have arrived in, so it's beginning to dawn on them that they might be alone in this. And it's also beginning to dawn on them that, too late as far as water's concerned, but as far as food's concerned, they're going to have to be very careful with how they dispense it. We're talking just a little over a week they would suffer this and even find a way to celebrate day 100 
listeners. This is the story of the Rose Noel. We'll be back very shortly. Life, the universe, and everything in between. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. This is the Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. This week's shipwreck tale, the Rose Noel, a trimaran. It's flipped four people upside down in there. They'd been in there for a little over a week. It would go on much, much longer, quite frankly. It's barely begun. An amazing story from 1989. John McChrystal, take it from there. They've begun rationing things, and of course these guys aren't getting along, so rationing becomes a bit of a mission in itself. At first what they did is they'd pour, say, a bowl of muesli with a sliced up apple, and then they would each take a spoonful. The trick was to try to load your spoon as heavily as you could so that you were technically still having one spoonful and get it all in your mouth without wasting any. This just set off enormous bickering every time. And Phil especially accused the others of getting more food than them because they had bigger mouths. That's the kind of thing that was going on. So eventually they had a bowl each and they would, with everyone watching like hawks, load each bowl with the ration so that there could be no dispute over who was getting more. But even then, and even though they're in this desperate situation, the way that John Glennie used to use his finger to get the last morsels of food out of his bowl and then even lick his bowl used to get right up Rick's nose because it was just not good table manners. Just these little things. Once they start getting up your nose, you just can't seem to let them go. It does become quite desperate. I mean, they're there for months. You could describe the mundanity of it, I suppose, every single day. And you'd need some will to keep going, (laughs) even though there's not much you can do about anything. The way they coped with it seems to have differed from person to person. Glennie seems to have been completely accepting and seems to have been quite capable of just living in the moment. In his book, he says that he just filled his time with dreaming about what he would do when he got out of the situation. He began writing a book of advice for the owners of multi-hull vessels. Uh, (laughs) He'd learned by his mistake. His head was full of schemes and he just seemed to be happy to dream his time away. Rick did it particularly hard because there was no action he could take to make the situation better. Phil had given up. He would eat food. He would drink water. He called it moisture because there wasn't enough of it. He would say, give me my moisture. They hated his neediness. He was always asking for stuff and usually stuff he couldn't have. What was their water source? They still had some 7-Up and they had some Coke and that kept them going for 40 days. That was keeping them alive. John Glennie... He was almost enjoying himself. In fact, the thing that really seemed to get up Rick's nose the most was the fact that Glennie actually smiled and laughed occasionally and cracked jokes and just didn't seem to be doing it too hard. Given that it seemed to be him who'd got them in this situation in the first place, Rick just found that very hard to deal with. It's a wonder there weren't fights. Apparently it came close several times, but there were no actual fights. After 40 days, this is only a third of the way through. That's right. They had their first rain on June 25th. They suddenly heard it raining. They rushed topside with a sun cover that they'd expected to keep them nice and shady in the tropics and used it to try to catch water. They successfully captured a couple of bottles worth of water and that probably saved their lives. So they decided that at all costs they must not lose the sun cover. Someone didn't take very good care of stowing the sun cover. Suspicion fell on Phil and was washed away. This proved to be a blessing in disguise because with the time on his hands that he had, Glennie devised several different systems for catching fresh water. He had some electrical conduit on the boat and they slit it down the middle to form semicircular guttering. They ran some of this around the side of the vessel to catch runoff. 
And they also constructed a kind of fan-shaped array of semicircular channels running into a bucket and lashed that to a spinnaker pole, which they stuck upright as a kind of mast. That proved to be quite effective when it began to rain in another week's time as well. So they managed to solve the freshwater problem. Why hadn't anybody found them with your iperb and your gadgets? Yeah, well, the EPIRB conked out after, after about seven days. Oh. There was just no one listening, and there was no one around to hear. On land, all hope was lost? They were expected in Tonga on the 24th of June, and that was a conservative time. So when they hadn't arrived by then, there was a fair bit of anxiety beginning to be voiced. And, of course, a search and rescue effort was mounted on around the 30th of August, but it was up by the Kermadex where Jim Bramwell's vague fixes seemed to have placed the Rose Noel. And Orion crisscrossed that area of water and found nothing and heard nothing. So they abandoned the search and there was nothing anyone could do then but wait. Funnily enough, the relatives seemed quite sanguine that these guys would show up again, mostly based on the assurances of John Glennie's brother Dave, who had an identical boat and had assisted in the building of the Rose Noel and knew that that boat barring a gas explosion or a collision at sea, just could not sink. She would be out there somewhere, and it was just a matter of waiting to see where she washed up. Day 50. (laughs) Grim, isn't it? We've described just how miserable it was minute to minute. Imagine what it must have been like enduring 50 days of it. Day 50 was a good day because they caught an albatross with a fishing line. They cooked it up because at that stage they'd improvised an LPG burner. So they had hot food at the stage. They had fresh hot food in the shape of this albatross. John Glennie, being a bit of a bon vivant, had lots of condiments aboard, and so they had this wonderful seabird curry. And then John Glennie showed his complete acceptance of their situation and his profound insensitivity to the fears and the horrors of his shipmates by speculating what they would have on day 100. (laughs) Everyone else wanted to be rescued the next day, but Glennie seemed quite happy to look forward to day 100 and what they would be having for tea then. They could catch fish. Only about a week after they went upside down, a groper, of all things, swam into the cabin and nosed around and then swam out again. Get out. Um, They nicknamed him Harry, and he came back, they supposed, because a single fish, same size each time, came in, swam around, and then finned out again. They eventually caught him, they improvised a net, and then one day poor old Harry came in and never, never left. Uh, So they had fresh fish. There's this peculiar phenomenon where you put an object out in the open ocean and fish seem to congregate around it. That seems to have happened with the Rose Noel. Several groper found their way into the boat and nosed around it, and they caught the odd one, and then they began catching kingfish as well. The best place for this was between the main hull and the wings, the floats of the boat, so they were able to net them and gaff them. Day 50, still listeners, isn't halfway through their ordeal. Between day 50 and 100, more of the same, and they must be getting pretty desperate and pretty hungry. The food situation is resolving itself. Now that they're catching fish, they're in relatively good shape. And they're even able to cook them, of course, too. The next 50 days must have been quite frustrating because they saw their first plane on the 27th of August. They'd already seen a ship off in the distance, and this had caused a huge row because Phil had rushed up on deck waving a little strobe light that they had. The ship was miles away. They could see the ship. There was no hope that the ship was going to see this tiny little light in the vastness of the ocean. When Glennie pointed this out to Phil, it apparently provoked a major contretemps. They saw a plane. This indicated to Glennie that they must be in New Zealand waters. They hadn't drifted out into the Pacific on their way to South America at all, as you would expect with the prevailing westerly wind and currents that were taking you there. 
the only planes that there could possibly be here must be originating from New Zealand and probably from Auckland. So they figured they were somewhere off the northeastern coast of the North Island. The 9th of September they saw another ship and again couldn't attract its attention, but this was beginning to give them hope that they were not so far from civilization as they thought. It seems to me that even the presence of kingfish indicated that they weren't as far from the coast as all that as well. They began to see jellyfish, which is a real green water development. That means they're definitely back in coastal waters. And by the 19th of September, and now we're right up in the high 70s in terms of days afloat, they began seeing planes more regularly, and even yachts at this stage. Again, it caused big trouble, but on Rick's birthday, it would have to be Rick, John did his infuriating thing of climbing up on the boat and enjoying the sunrise, which was his habit. He called out, does anyone else want to come up and see the sunrise? And he got a fairly short, sharp response to that. And he said, not even for Rick's birthday, an even shorter, sharper response for that. And then he said, does anyone want to come up and see the sailboat then? And of course, that got them all on deck pretty quickly. But again, the boat just sailed off uh, into the distance. That happened many times, but then... 28th September, they saw land. It got closer, and those who knew that part of the coast reasonably well decided they were looking at Great Barrier Island, and they were definitely heading inwards. They had a southeasterly breeze, and it was pushing them in. Rescue was on its way. Oh, my goodness. They can't steer the thing. If you're that far away from Great Barrier Island in the first place, you could easily float away from it. Were they confident they were going to go towards it? No, there was no confidence. They were, but you can imagine what a desperate wait that must have been. All it would take is a westerly to blow up and they were gone. And they might as well never have sighted land for all the good it was going to do them at that point. On the 30th of September, they can hear the breakers. Soon enough, it becomes plain they're going to go ashore on Great Barrier Island. This is dangerous. Uh, Yes, east coast of Great Barrier Island, towering cliffs, lots of outlying rocks. It's a rugged coast and it's accounted for its share of shipping in its own right. They've got no control over their destiny whatsoever. They're incredibly lucky. The waves wash them into a place called Little Waterfall Bay, which is a notch in the cliffs, and the bush comes pretty much right down to the waterline. It's the only place for miles and miles on either side where they weren't going to be smashed to smithereens and killed. So on the 30th of September, in the dark, the Rose Noel's dragged over the rocks. Glenny is thrown overboard and nearly drowns, but they manage piecemeal to get ashore, struggle up through the bush. It took six hours, but it was only a very short distance, and they broke into a batch and enjoyed their first shower, their first proper food. You'd be very weak. Yes, they were weak. They could barely sit upright. Big mistake they made, though, is to really clean themselves up and trim their beards or, in Phil's case, shave it off altogether, borrow some clothes from the batch and whatever. So they're pretty sharp looking by the next day. And they heard a telephone ringing from the neighbouring batch. They went and broke into that, got on the blower, made the extraordinary announcement to the outside world that on day 119, after they'd set sail, they were back in civilization. They'd survived. Needless to say, as soon as word reached the mainland, the news media descended on Great Barrier Island, and these poor buggers were just grilled mercilessly by the media. And meanwhile, of course, everyone was thinking, well, they're not suffering from saltwater boils. They're not suffering from scurvy. They don't look particularly emaciated, and they're clean-shaven. And some of them were wearing quite nice clothes. They were out there for four months. You could cross to South America in that time and then get back, and who knows what kind of cargo you might bring back in that time. So on the third day of intensive interviews, an Australian radio channel said to Rick, so do you still stand by your claim that you were drifting for 119 days on this boat? 
And you can imagine how that must have gone down with these guys. Stand by your claim that you were adrift in this boat. There were a couple of particularly pungent theories on what they'd been up to. One was that they were drug runners and they'd headed off to South America and come back with a cargo of something, which they'd probably stashed quite close to where the boat was wrecked. That theory was given enough credibility that police and customs investigated it to the fullest extent they could. What? The other theory is that this was all a great big publicity stunt for Outward Bound because there were two Outward Bound members aboard. <laughs> what clinched their story really was the appearance of John Glennie, who probably because he'd done the hardest physical work, he was very emaciated, and photographs prove that to be the case. And also, divers went down on the wreck of the Rose Noel, and they couldn't help but notice that the bits of the boat that were meant to be above water were heavily encrusted with barnacles, and the bits of the boat that were meant to be below the water were clean. So it seemed plain, just by looking at the wreckage, that this boat had been upside down for a long time, what's more. The Skeptical Customs Department still wanted confirmation of that, so they sent samples at the hull sections, or the deck sections, to the DSIR, who studied the marine life on them, and in fact they put together a remarkably accurate portrait of the bits of water that the ship had been floating upside down through. Those two bits of evidence really did it. And funnily enough, Jim Bramwell, whose radio watch had thrown rescuers and searchers off, his son was out on a yacht not far from where the Rose Noel capsized. And one day he just idly scrawled a message, put it in the bottle, chucked it overboard. And that bottle washed up shortly after the Rose Noel and within a very short distance. When that piece of news became known, that the vastly improbable story that these guys were telling, that the currents that should have taken them to South America actually delivered them up the coast to Great Barrier, suddenly became credible. It's just remarkable. It is. Now, I take it these four didn't go flatting together immediately after, did they? No, but sort of next best thing. Jim and Rick were always close, and they got even closer aboard the boat. Rick really pulled Jim through. He probably wouldn't have made it otherwise. Upon his return, when they were having routine medical checks, they were all found to be in very good shape, actually, except poor old Rick's cancer had returned. He began going downhill rapidly, and Jim nursed him throughout his final illness. Having survived all that, poor old Rick died on July the 5th, 1991. There are still survivors today? There are. Jim lives in America. I'm not sure where John Glennie is. I believe he still lives in New Zealand. I don't think he's a keen yachty anymore. They're still around. There's been a TV documentary made of this, and there's been a superb play, actually, called Flipside, written by Ken Duncan, made of this as well. It's a remarkable story. It's one of those great stories. If you include the bushwalk, 120 days. Good heavens. Thank you very much, John McChrystal. This has been the story of the Rose Noel, a truly remarkable shipwreck tale, all of our own. Thanks.